Hey, good morning, church. <laughs> it's good to be with you this morning. I am I'm so relieved um, to be to be with you, to be present with you. Um, it's, it's been uh, a difficult couple of weeks. Uh, for those of you that have not heard yet, my father passed away a couple of weeks ago, so it's a great loss to me um, and to my family. But it's also a great loss to us as Grace Church. Um, He did a lot of things and would never let me tell you about the things that he was doing. And so as we move forward together, family, um, we will find and discover, I think, even things that I was not aware of that he was regularly taking care of and not asking for any kind of accolades or recognition or anything. So um, that'll be a a journey of discovery that we'll have um, together. We're in a series, uh, actually concluding today, a series, and I feel like I should sit down, but maybe I won't. We'll see. Uh, Concluding a series that we've called Living with the End in Mind. And it has been my experience, and I've had other pastors confirm this, that very rarely does a person get to preach a message that they haven't first lived through. Um, oftentimes, regardless of what text we might be going through and exploring through, um, usually that week, there is some kind of something that happens in my life personally that makes me face the, the, the truth or ask questions about the truth of the message that God has given me to preach. Um, and it happens, it happens regularly. And so I say that to say I really probably should have been more nervous to be preaching a series about death. And I opened it up uh, three, four weeks ago. And at that time, all I knew was that dad was sick and we had put him in an ambulance and taken him to the hospital. We didn't know that he wouldn't be coming home to the home that he had built here, but he would be headed home to see his king in heaven. Um, and so now um, I wanted to, uh, different pastors had given me counsel about whether it was too early to come back, but I thought, no, there's some kind of poetry to opening a series on death, having the experience of burying my father, and now being able to come together and to close this series together with you. Um, so that's what I'd like to do together this morning. And as we embark on this journey together, let me just invite you to pray with me. And we'll pray together the disciples' prayer. If you're not familiar with it, it's there on the screen for you. Um, And this isn't like a magic prayer. It's not an incantation. But it is a model that Jesus left for us. And it is one that shapes our heart to reflect his. So would you pray together with me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Have I mentioned that I'm glad to be with you this morning? <laughs> when, 
we opened up this series with Jesus teaching and somebody shouting out uh, a request of Jesus. Jesus was in the middle of a, of, of a teaching, teaching, and somebody yelled out, Hey, Jesus, I got a problem. You need to go and tell my brother to evenly divide the inheritance with me. And he says, I think you're missing the point. He says, who am I to judge between you on family matters? This isn't the thing that I came to do. I have a mission, and that is not it. <clears throat> but if you really are going to pick a fight over this right now, let me tell you about covetousness. Let me warn you that your desire to have the things that are of this world and to make sure that your brother doesn't have them is a sickness that's in your heart you need to be aware of. And as we become aware of that, and as we become increasingly aware of our need, we come to find God's character that God will supply everything that we need. He is not uh, vengeful. He doesn't just create rules to make our lives miserable, but he cares for us and walks with us. And as he generously provides for us, so he invites us to live generously. So be ready. Be ready for your day. If we're living with the end in mind, then let us recall that death comes for each of us. Uh, as I said in my dad's memorial service this week, it runs in the family. We either live long enough to see Jesus return in glory, or we go to him. So be ready and care for those whom God has entrusted to you. And oftentimes, as we think about that, we think of like our kids, and we think of our family. We think of relationships that are close to us. And many times, I personally will stop there and not consider the people that I work with or the people that I live close to. But those people have also been entrusted to us. Allegiance to Jesus is going to introduce conflict in your family. He's not, he doesn't mince words about that. You think I came to bring peace? I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring division. And fathers and sons are going to fight over this. Mothers and daughters-in-law. As if they didn't have enough to disagree about. <clears throat> but he teaches us to be patient in our growing. And he teaches us the kingdom, his kingdom, is pervasive. It is not contained. It does not fit in a box on Sunday morning. The kingdom of God is not a worship gathering for an hour a week. It's like leaven in a, in a lump of dough. It permeates the whole of who we are. Living with the end, with, end in mind changes how we live today. As we pick up today, we're going to be in Luke chapter 14. Uh, if you want to turn to Bibles, um, I don't have the page number in the blue Bibles, but if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to, to Luke chapter 14. Oh, I got it right here. Duh. It's on 1090 in the blue Bibles if you're using those. You can navigate um, however you'd like to get there, but we're going to be in Luke chapter 14, and we're going to begin in verse 12. <clears throat> And Luke 14 is actually all one story. It's all, um, 
<laughs> it's all one set of teachings. And the setting of the story is actually a banquet. It's a Sabbath, and he's been invited by a Pharisee. Jesus has been invited by a Pharisee to come and eat at his table. Um, so maybe this is what we think of like a Sunday lunch. Like we go to we go to sat, we go to church and then the Sunday lunch we we can invite some people over and you know it's a time um, a time to eat together. So Jesus is there. He's at somebody else's table in somebody else's house, and he begins to tell different stories. And some of those Josh went over with you last week, um, but where we're going to pick up in verse twelve, he turns to the guy who invited him. And Jesus says in verse 12, he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So here's a little bit of Jesus' audacity. I don't know if we think about this too much because we, we get comfortable like reading the Bible. It's in black and white and we just have, are familiar with some of the stories. We've heard Jesus say something kind of like this before and we don't really think about what it is that he's doing. But understand, he's in a man's house, sitting at the man's table, eating the man's food and says, hey, you're doing this all wrong. That's the audacity of Jesus, that he calls people to the carpet in their own living room. He says, when you give a feast, don't invite your rich neighbors. Don't invite your brothers and your sisters, your family. Don't invite the people who are close to you. Because odds are, if you invite somebody of good repute, then they're going to invite you to their table, and then you'll be repaid. Like, don't do that. And we don't really realize it because we kind of feel an inclination to do this. If somebody does something nice for us, we feel like it's probably right for us to repay the gesture in some small way. That's, that's, it's a cultural thing, but not really. For, for the, the Romans at this time, this was actually more like a social law. It was a social contract that if you got invited somewhere, you were required to then try to repay the thing. And there are all these power dynamics of how the things work together. Josh, as a history teacher, could explain it much more thoroughly than I will. But understand, like, this was just something that they all did. He says, don't do the thing that everybody does. Instead, when you give a feast, invite the poor. Invite the cripple. Invite the lame and the blind, the people on the street that you much prefer would not there because you have to walk. You know, I gotta walk, and these people are just there and they're asking me stuff, and like I don't really want to deal with them. No, 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 don't don't just walk past them, don't just leave something in their cup as they're begging. Invite them to dinner. And you'll be blessed. I don't I don't know what your experience is with the poor and the blind and the lame and the crippled. If you spend any time with them at all, you will understand that oftentimes interacting with people who have needs drains you. There, there is a toll to helping people. It is not always easy to help people who need help. And yet Jesus says, yeah, bring those people along. Yep, they smell. Yep, they're rude. 
Yep, they're, they're, they're inconvenient. You have to like touch them to bring them. Like they, if they can't walk by themselves, you have to carry them. It's going to cost you something. Your back might hurt just getting them into the door. But you'll be blessed. Because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, let me just pause briefly and let you know, um, there's another Grace Church that we're uh, in the same fellowship with in Bath, Ohio. And they did a whole sermon series on chapter 14, and it is excellent teaching. I gleaned a lot from it. And so if, you, if you're hearing this and going, I want to know more, like I can point you in that direction. Grace Church Bath campus um, did, a, did a great series, and I didn't even write down what it is called. But if you, if you want it, I'll send you a link to it. <coughs> But Jesus opens this up, calling to the carpet the guy who invited him to this meal and says, you've done this all wrong. You, you invited me because I'm the teacher and I have some kind of good reputation and maybe you're hoping that by inviting me into your house, then some of my reputation will rub off on you. You'll have favor with the people because you, they have seen me dine with you. But you've calculated the ROI incorrectly. Do you know what I mean when I say ROI? Um, this was a new term to me that I have only learned in, a, in the last couple of years. Return on investment. It's, it's one that's common in our world. Since I have learned it, I hear it everywhere now. What's the ROI on this? What's the ROI? What's the ROI on helping people who need help? And I know acutely the discomfort that we have helping people who need help because people who need help need help. And sometimes we're concerned they're just going to take advantage of us. And they're going to walk all over us and they're just going to keep asking for more and more and more. And, and what's the ROI on this? When are they going to start giving back to me? Or when are they going to be on their feet so that they can take care of themselves? Like, what is the ROI? And Jesus says, you've miscalculated it. If they can't repay you, you have been blessed. Because banquets cost something. Like for us, you know, we got to pull out the fine china and we got to make sure that the silver is polished and we got to make sure that the glasses are clean and all of those kind of things. <clears throat> but then we're going to go down to Publix and pick up some food or, or we're going to call uh, Sonny's Barbecue and make sure that there's a big spread ready. Like, like, yeah, that stuff costs money, but it's really kind of simple for us. Like in this time, there may have been a butcher in town, but maybe you're just going out to the field and you're wrestling down a cow and then you're going to kill it and then you're going to butcher it yourself and then you're going to cook it. And then you got to find like some vegetables to serve with it. And if you want wine, you better hope that you've been growing grapes for 10 years so that you can squash them and get some wine. Like all of this, like we just go and pick a bottle up off the shelf, but for them, they're an agricultural society. A banquet was costly. And if I'm going to lay out a spread for you, it's going to be a great expense to myself. And so it probably behooves me to invite people that can pay me back on this. And yet if I invite folks that can't, I'll be blessed. With whom do we share our gifts? I know stories in this room, and I know some of how we answer this question, but, but, but this text begs it. With whom do we share our gifts? Do we share our gifts with the people who can pay us back? 
Do we share our gifts with the people who we know are not going to waste it, that we can guarantee? I'm reminded in, in 1 Corinthians 6 as um, Paul is explaining to some brothers who are in a lawsuit together and he gets to a certain point and says, hey, like you guys are going to court over this. You're, you're, you're bringing shame to the name of Christ. Wouldn't it be better to just be defrauded? Wouldn't it be better to let your brother just rob you than to mar the reputation of Christ in your community? With whom do we share our gifts? And do we share them, when we share them, with a small reminder to the people that we're blessing of how much it is costing us? <laughs> that's, that's the temptation in my heart. You guys are, are holier than me, I'm sure. But there's times where I want to do something for somebody and I want them to know what it costs me. Like, yes, I will help you with this, but I just want you to know... Blah, blah, blah. Of course, I'll come and cut your grass for you. I know it's, 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 a, it's a pain, and blah, 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 but I really hate cutting grass a lot. Like, it's the most terrible in the whole world. I, I, I hate it so much. Can we share without grumbling? Here's our, our big idea for the morning. Jesus relocates our expectation for returns as we live with the end in mind. There's a transaction that happens between people as we share gifts and give gifts and live generously. There are transactions and we look for our ROI from the people that we bless or are blessed by. But as we live with the end in mind, Jesus relocates our expectation for returns, not from the people that we are blessing, but from God the Father. And there's a subtle, like... I, 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 somebody pointed out to me this week, and it's very, very subtle. It's something that I learned this week in Scripture. And I'm so excited that Scripture is so deep that you can study it for decades and still learn things. But Paul does this all the time. When somebody partners with Paul in ministry, the Roman thing to do is to thank them and say, I owe you now. You've given me something. Thank you for the thing you've given me, and I owe you. He never does that. He says, I thank God for you that God has blessed me through your hands, and may God give you everything that you need. Like, how rude is that? Over and over, Paul's like, hey, I'm not even going to thank you for the thing that you've given to me. I'm thanking God that he's given you to give to me, and you've given me, and I'm going to trust that God's going to pay you back. That's kind of rude. I gave an offering to you, Paul. I'm supporting your ministry. I'm paying your paycheck. You ought to be beholden to me. And he never does that. And here Jesus reminds us of the thing that Paul learned, that Jesus relocates our expectation for returns as we live with the end in mind. Let's continue reading in chapter 14 and verse 15. I love it when people talk back to Jesus. It's kind of my favorite thing. <clears throat> Luke chapter 14, verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Amen, brother. But Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. 
And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out to see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry. And said to the servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city. Bring in the poor and the crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled, for I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. So Jesus here Uh, somebody responds to him and says, like, blessed are the people who are in the kingdom of God. Like, they get to eat bread at God's table. Like, we're so excited about this. Uh, And Jesus says, I still don't think you're getting it. Let me tell you a story. And Jesus gives a parable. A parable, he he gives details uh, about something, a spiritual truth using a, a real story. Excuse me, my vocabulary is not coming together this morning. And he says, look, somebody gave a great banquet. And you know it was a great banquet because they sent out RSVPs ahead of time. They sent out invitations before they started preparing the banquet. Do you see that? He, he, he sends out a bunch of invitations. But then when it is ready, then he goes and it's a servant to gather people. So he sent out everybody said, hey, I'm thinking about going on a banquet. I'm thinking about this date. Is, are you available then? Because I want you to be there. Like you're invited and I want you to be there. And before I go out and start killing stuff and, and, and cooking it, like I want you to know because banquets are costly. And I want to know, are you going to come? I sent out these RSVPs. And people are like, yeah, yeah, we'll be there. We'll be there that day. So the, so the day comes and the master sends out the servant to cash in on the RSVPs. And people start canceling and backing out last minute with ridiculous excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field. I must go out and see it. Have you ever bought a house or rented a house that you've never laid eyes on? Okay, yeah, okay, when you're building a house, like, but you've looked at blueprints. You agreed on blueprints of what the plan was for the thing they were going to build. Like, and you counted up the cost of what is it going to cost for me to have the wall here as opposed to over there. And so the guy says, hey, I just, I just bought this field, um, which might be like buying a business, like, because he's going to grow things. He says, I just bought this field, and i got to go look at the ground. You already did that. If you already put the money down, it's done. Like, what do you mean you've got to go look at the field? And the second guy says, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Um, have you guys, do you guys know farmers at all? They're very practical dudes. And they understand ROI very well. They're acutely attuned to, if I do this, if I buy this much seed, then I could have this much yield. And if the weather's good, then maybe I can make it till next year. They're very practical guys. This guy here is a farmer because he's buying oxen, right? So the farmer says to the master of the banquet, hey, I just bought a tractor. And now that the sale's over, I'm sending my mechanic to have it inspected to make sure it's all good. No, you didn't. 
You had that tractor. You knew that tractor up and down. You did all the Kelly Blue Book or whatever the equivalent to farm equipment is. Like, you know what that tractor's worth. You know the problems with it. And you've already willed him down to make sure that you get the best price. Like, of course you're buying a tractor. You already know what it is. What do you mean you're going now that you've bought it to inspect it? You've lost your mind. The thing I said, hey, I just got married. You didn't know your wedding date when I sent you the invitation for this banquet? Like, what do you mean you just got married? Like, if you just got married, that means that you have spent months preparing a house, building a house on the, your parents' house, so you've got a place to take your wife. And when I sent you the invitation, you didn't seem to think that maybe on that day you were going to be occupied? The bogus excuses. And the master's angry, rightly so. He says, you know what? I'm setting a real nice banquet. I'm pulling out my fine china. I'm, I'm killing the, uh, the best beef, and we're going to have steaks, and it's going to be amazing, but I want you to extend the invitations to the poorest people in the land. I want you to go out to the streets, and I want you to invite everybody who, who has nothing better to do with their day. The people who aren't at work, invite them. Invite the folks that are begging on the street. I want them at my banquet. Well, okay, I did that for all the people in town, and uh, there's still seats at the table. Well, go farther out. Hit the, hit the, hit, hit the highways. Go, go to the interstate and find the people that are begging on the side of the interstate and invite them to come too. Make sure that there are no seats available at my table for the people who RSVP'd who might catch word that this is a really nice party and are going to try to come late. Like, make sure there's no room for them. But I told you it's a, it's a parable. It's a story about the world that explains a spiritual truth. The master of the banquet is God. I think the people who received an invitation, probably first and most directly, are, are, are related to Israel. The people who had a previous relationship with God and who felt entitled to God's blessings. They got an invitation to the party that God was throwing. Personalized. They RSVP'd. On the letterhead. But they're religious folks. They're folks that already know the right answers. And they say, I got some other things to work on today, God. It's not really a good time. And so Jesus says, all right. Let me go find the people that got no interest in me. Let me go find the people that are dirty and broken and let me bring them in to the thing that I am creating. Let me go find the least of these and let me invest my riches with them. There's something about this, this religious idea that you have that you're going to be able to repay me later with your sacrifices or, or whatever it is at the temple that you plan to do. But these people know they can't repay me. They know that they cannot bless me with anything other than their whole selves. And so those are the people that I'm going to give my blessings to. What costs has God incurred that we are quick to take for granted? What costs has God incurred upon himself that you and I, church people, who took a shower recently, we're quick to take for granted? There is a common grace. It's, uh, that's 
kind of the theological word for it. There's a common grace. There's, there's kindness that God gives to everybody in the world without, um, re, without regards to how you're living. Whether you're a good person or a bad person, we all get the oxygen for free. Whether you're a good person or a bad person, we all get the same weather. There's common grace that we enjoy. There's blessings of living in the world. Whether you're a good person or a bad person, there are odds that you could have a really great family who loves you a lot. It is a common grace. And those are things that we typically remember at like Thanksgiving. <laughs> when we're going around the table and somebody says, hey, what are you thankful for? It's like, oh, well, you know, uh, I, got to, I, got, I could walk out of the bed this morning. And not every morning you kind of do that because my knees are, you know... And, so I'm thankful for that, and you know, there's a common grace that I think we do oftentimes take for granted, and so we've built into our calendars times to remember. But if we're familiar with Jesus, uh, the, the biggest danger of being familiar with Jesus is that your familiarity depletes your intimacy. That, that, that the Son of God would come to earth <laughs> entitled to the riches of heaven and every comfort that we might have, if there's anybody who deserved to be treated like royalty, it was Jesus. And yet he was born into poverty and most of the time ate with poor people and invested himself with them. <clears throat> in, in relation, in tying these things together, there's a common grace that we take for granted that's called Air conditioning? Amen. Amen. And I know you guys lost your air conditioning last night. <laughs> but there, it's, a, it's a common grace. And think about this. The Son of God, Almighty, comes down from heaven and walks in a world where there is no air conditioning. And yet, here we sit, well-cooled and dry. What costs has God incurred that we are quick to take for granted? And I don't bring those things up to, to, to bring up a, a spirit of guilt in you to say, oh, I'm such a bad person. But just to say, like, turn to God and be thankful for the small things as well as the big things. And when he extends an invitation to something that he's doing, be very careful in how you weigh the temporary things with the things that are internal. Eternal, excuse me. How so? I'd invite you to continue reading with me this last section in verse 25. As Jesus relocates our expectations for returns as we live with the end in mind. Now, great crowds accompanied him. So we're leaving the banquet and we're out in the world again. And great crowds accompanied Jesus and he turned and said to them... <laughs> If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? 
And if not, while the other is, a yet, is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Um, this, this is a passage of great interest to me right now. The question arose a couple months ago in my head. What does Jesus say about his disciples? Like, what, what, how does he describe the people who are his disciples? And there's actually very few times where he turns and addresses, like, this is a picture of what my disciple looks like. And this passage here, these verses here, are the most explicit, like the longest section where Jesus says, if you want to know about my disciples, this is what they're like. This is what he says. He's at a very popular time. There are crowds following him, and he turns around and says, hey, you guys need to get something about following me. If you don't hate your family, you can't be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple. And Jesus is, <laughs> Jesus obviously doesn't get with the times. Like, we shouldn't be making it harder for people to go to church. We should be making it easier and more accessible for everybody to come to church. And yet Jesus here says, look, if you can't, if you can't hate your dad, you can't be my disciple. If your priorities and your valuation of the things in your life are that these things are greater than, than me, then you cannot be my disciple. You cannot follow me and also maintain all of these attachments in the world. Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So count the cost. Like You're building a tower here. You're laying a foundation. Your life is an investment. And so count the cost of what you're investing in. Are you going to invest continually and wholly and solely into your family, into your church, into your work? If you give yourself wholly to those things, and they are good things, if you give yourself wholly to those things, you will have missed the one investment that Jesus calls us to, and that is to life with him. I grew up thinking that it was the bad things in life that were going to distract me from following Jesus. And here he says, it's good things. It's good and, and right things that can very easily become the God of your life and keep you from following me. This recalls something that he just said and we've spoken about in this series in Luke 13, verses 22 through 30. Is, if you want to follow me, it's a narrow door. There's lots of people who talk the talk, but it's a narrow door to get in. There's lots of people who, who, who can make other people think that they're in and yet miss it completely. And some who are last will be first. Some who are first will be last. So here's the question. Will we, will we trust Jesus' appraisal of our treasure? You guys are familiar with Antique Roadshow, right? Nodding, anybody? Antique Roadshow? I got one? Yeah? Okay. All right, cool. So Antique Roadshow, it's, it's a TV show where people bring in their old junk that they found in the attic, and they go to these experts and ask the experts to tell them what the thing is worth, and hoping that they have some kind of million-dollar antique tucked away, and now they can retire early. So the, the whole premise of the show is that the people who are the experts are actually experts and know what is going on. I don't know how you become an expert in this kind of thing. Like, I don't know what the schooling for that looks like, but we trust these people. They're on TV. 
right? And you have to pay, like this is it's crazy, you have to pay money to go on the show. You pay money to go on the show to have somebody to tell you the thing that you have is junk. And then if, if the person tells you that what you have is junk, do you put it? What, you just throw it on Facebook Marketplace and try to get rid of it, right? You're not putting it up for auction. You trust implicitly the expert. Will we trust Jesus' appraisal of our treasure? He says, your family is good, but if you give your life to your children and you live for them, they, it will kill you. He says, your work is good part of, of, of the world. Like, we were designed to work. We were working in the garden before sin entered. It work is good, but if you give your whole self to it, it will kill you. We must live with the end in mind. And as we live with the end in mind, Jesus relocates our expectation for returns. We are not looking to our family to give us the satisfaction that we want. We are not looking to our job to give us the peace that we feel like we need. We're not looking to our retirement to give us that sense of security that everything's going to be okay, especially this year. But we look at Jesus. And if my retirement implodes, he's there. And he cares for me. And if my family passes away suddenly from an unforeseen disease, he is there and he loves me deeply. And if I lose my job, I know he has good works prepared for me. And he wants to lead me in them. Jesus relocates our expectations for returns as we live with the end in mind. Will we trust Jesus' appraisal of our treasure? Would you pray with me? Father, these are weighty matters. We do not easily turn our attention to the fact that we are frail and feeble and can be taken from this life in a heartbeat or just the absence of a couple of them. And Lord, we know that our heart beats. But if it stops, we know that we're without any kind of power to make it go again. There's a sense in which we feel helpless as we think about the end. And we are. Except that you are our help that our life is in your hands, that our name, our days have been numbered by you, that you know our name, and that you are calling us to yourself to follow you, to invest our whole lives to be your disciple, to be generous to those who cannot be generous to us, to guard our hearts against covetousness, Lord Jesus, these are things that we could check off of a list. But God, you can renovate our hearts so that these things flow out of it. Lord, would you make us willing? 
Would you shape us and mold us? Would you comfort us and be our peace? Would you lead us forward to be your representatives in this world, in this day, in this week? May your kingdom come. Your will be done. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.